You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem, and I am your host, Hanok Teller. Jew hatred was not only metastasizing in Germany during this time, time being the 1930s, but throughout all of Europe, convincing many Jews that it was time for them to emigrate. Palestine's Jewish population swelled sixfold, from a mere 84,000 to half a million. The expansion stoked Arab fears of Jewish dominance and helped trigger the revolts which, in turn, drove the British to retreat from the mandate's promises to the Jews. These promises, as approved by the League of Nations in 1922, were to recognize the historical connection of the Jewish people with Palestine, and assist them in reconstituting their national home in that country. To this end, the British were to promote the establishment of a Jewish self-government in the country and facilitate Jewish immigration. But such aspirations fell victim to a pattern in which waves of Jewish refugees were met by Arab rebellions that threatened Britain's Middle East empire at a time of mounting international tensions. And after each uprising, it was followed by an investigative commission and a white paper recommending cutbacks in Jewish immigration and land purchases. Mandatory officials grew vocal in their opposition to Zionism, with some of them becoming openly anti-Semitic. Finally, in 1939, Britain issued a white paper that essentially closed Palestine's doors to European Jews, indeed all Jews, doomed the Jews in Europe to the death camps. No wonder Zionist leader David Ben-Gurion vowed to fight the white paper as if there were no war, and to fight the war as if there were no white paper. Both the mainstream Haganah, which was Israel's main defense organization, and the revisionist Irgun, the national military organization, volunteered to serve in the British army. Only one faction, and that was Lehi, fighters for the freedom of the land of Israel, broke away from the Irgun in 1940 and focused on fighting the British. By 1945, after the war's end, all three Zionist militias joined in an effort to drive the British from Palestine. It was one of the first successful post-war struggles against colonialism, inspiring similar insurrections in Africa, India, and the Far East. The British finally reacted by saying they would make a royal commission to examine events. This commission, known as the Peel Commission, came to a startling new revelation, and that was that it is not possible to get the Jews and the Arabs to live together under one mandate. Neither will accept the rule of the other. There will have to be a division. Their conclusion was that 75% of Palestine would go to the Arabs, and about 20% to the Jews, and the remaining 5%, including areas of Jerusalem and the port of Jaffa, would remain under British rule. After agonizing debate, the Jews agreed to a state that would be only 20% of what had been promised to them. But the Arabs felt that giving the Jews 20% or any single percent was far too much for them, and they rejected it out of hand. The Arabs resumed the revolt, and the British appointed yet another committee. The Arab position was not only rejection of a Jewish state as a principle, but refusal of Jewish immigration and land sales under any circumstances. In May of 1939, at the same time that it was most crucial for Jews to have a place to escape, as the entire world had hermetically sealed their doors to Jews fleeing for their lives, the British committed the ultimate betrayal of the Balfour Declaration 
and issued the white paper. Britain's Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain was famous, or better put, infamous, advocate of the policy of appeasement, just like in Munich. Chamberlain naively thought that he had acquired, quote, peace in our time, which was totally naive, as not only did the Nazis not stop with Sudetenland, but on to take all of Czechoslovakia, and from there, all of Europe. The British in Palestine were feeling the effects of the Arab revolt and thought that it might resolve the warring atmosphere to convene a conference in London by parties involved. It was attended by representatives of five Arab countries, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Yemen, and Transjordan, as well as a Palestinian delegation of Arabs that was split between followers of the Mufti and those that were frightened of the Mufti. There was also a Zionist executive and, of course, the British hosts. There were a few meetings between the Zionists and the leaders of the Arab states, without the Palestinians. At one of these meetings, Ali Maher of Egypt appealed to the Zionists to stop or at least limit the immigration to Palestine. Weizmann was interested in the non-belligerent spirit of Maher's appeal, but Ben-Gurion and others in the delegation following him rejected it and offered the powerful analogy of stopping Jewish immigration to Palestine in 1939 to being akin to asking a woman in labor to stop birth. The conference, which Connor Cruz O'Brien compared to far more a demonstration, did not and could not result in any agreement. It broke up in March 1939, two days after Hitler's occupation of Prague, the event that ended the process and the hope of appeasement in Europe. The consequence of this conference was for the British to issue a unilateral statement which was, imposed, which was an imposed solution, which was a sellout by the British. Our demands were accepted in the White Paper of May 1939, which stipulated no partition, no Jewish state, and an independent Palestinian state within 10 years. Jewish immigration after five years would not be allowed, quote, unless the Arabs of Palestine were prepared to acquiesce to it. The legality of the White Paper in terms of the mandate was questionable. This would have to be brought before the League of Nations, but the outbreak of the war brought about an end to the League. In a pattern that we have seen, and we will continue to see, the Higher Arab Committee meeting in Beirut rejected the White Paper, which was giving them almost, almost, almost everything they wanted, and they considered it totally inadequate. The Mufti's people went about assassinating any Arab leader or spokesman who was deemed pro-white paper. The connection is manifestly clear between the Mufti, who had not accepted anything less than 100% of what he demanded, and his nephew, Yasser Arafat, who would not accept agreements sponsored by Clinton that would give him nearly 100% of what he demanded. Just as President Clinton was leaving office, Arafat called him up and said that he was a great man. Clinton's response, as featured in Newsweek magazine and also in Clinton's memoir, is, quote, I am not a great man. I am a failure, and you have made me one. What President Clinton was referring to was the two-week-long conference in Camp David in July 2000, which Clinton himself had organized and mediated, and its failure and the eruption at the end of September of the Palestinian Intifada, which has continued ever since. Halfway through the conference... Apparently, this would have been on July 18th. Clinton had slowly, to avoid any misunderstanding, read out to Arafat a document endorsed in advance by Prime Minister Ehud Barak, outlining the main points of a future settlement. 
listen carefully to these incredible conditions. The proposals included the establishment of a demilitarized Palestinian state on some 92% of the West Bank and 100% of the Gaza Strip, with some territorial compensation for Palestinians from pre-1967 Israeli territory. The dismantling of most of the settlements and the concentration of the bulk of settlers inside 8% of the West Bank to be annexed by Israel. The establishment of the Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem, in which some Arab neighborhoods would become sovereign Palestinian territory and others would enjoy functional autonomy. Palestinian sovereignty over half of the old city of Jerusalem, the Muslim and the Christian quarters, and custodianship, though not sovereignty, over the Temple Mount, a return of refugees to the prospective Palestinian state, though with no right of return to Israel proper, and the organization by the international community of a massive aid program to facilitate the refugees' rehabilitation. And to all of this, Arafat said no. In a rage, Clinton banged on the table and said, you are leading your people and the region to a catastrophe. The Israeli offer was exceptionally generous and very, very close to the Palestinian demands. And Arafat refused even to accept it, even as a basis for negotiations. He stormed out of the room and deliberately turned to terrorism. Clinton considered the Israeli endorsed offer so good, I couldn't believe anyone would be so foolish to let it go. He also said, I killed myself to give the Palestinians a state. Looking back, former Prime Minister Ehud Barak also realized how unrealistic it was to think that there could be any negotiations with Arafat. He described Yasser Arafat's behavior at Camp David as a, quote, performance, geared to exact from the Israelis as many concessions as possible without ever seriously intending to reach a peace settlement or sign an end to the conflict. Barak said, quote, he did not negotiate in good faith. Indeed, he did not negotiate at all. He just kept saying no to every offer, never making any counter-proposal of his own. Arafat lacked the character or will to make a historic compromise, as did the late Egyptian President Anwar Sadat in 1977 to 1979, when he made peace with Israel. And Barak accused Arafat of secretly planning Israel's demise while he strung along a succession of Israeli and Western leaders and on the way hoodwinked naive journalists. Arafat himself saw himself as reborn Saladin, the Kurdish Muslim general who defeated the Crusaders in the 12th century. I think it's maybe better to call him more of a marauder. And Israel is just another ephemeral Crusader state. Barak, who as far as I know was the most leftist and liberal Israeli prime minister, had this to say about Palestinian and especially Arafat's mendacity. Quote, They are products of a culture in which to tell a lie creates no dissonance. They don't suffer from the problem of telling lies that exist in Judeo-Christian culture. Truth is seen as an irrelevant category. There's only that which serves your purpose and that which doesn't. They see themselves as emissaries of a national movement for whom everything is permissible. There is no such thing as the truth. Former Prime Minister Barack added, the Deputy Director of the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation, a.k.a. the FBI, once told me that there are societies in which lie detector tests don't work. Societies in which lies do not create cognitive dissonance, which, of course, the tests are based upon. Let's listen to what NPR has to say. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Melissa Block. And I'm Robert Siegel. The resumption of peace talks between Israelis and Palestinians in Washington this week reminded us of the last time the parties aimed at settling their differences with an American president as mediator. Ten summers ago, there were two weeks of talks at Camp David. President Bill Clinton hoped to settle the conflict once and for all. Both Prime Minister Barack and Chairman Arafat I have the vision, the knowledge, the experience, and the ability, and the sheer guts to to do what it takes, I think, to reach an agreement, and then uh, to take it back to their people and see if they can sell it. The Camp David talks failed. But at Camp David, and in the diplomatic activity that followed, the outlines of a two-state settlement came into focus, even as Middle East diplomacy gave way to renewed conflict. And uh, joining us from Baltimore, Maryland, is Aaron David Miller, who is now a public policy scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center. He was a longtime State Department advisor who was deeply involved in U.S. Mideast diplomacy. Uh, uh, Aaron, uh, good to talk with you once again. Pleasure to be here, Robert. Is it best to tell these leaders, look, we'll, we'll give you cover so you don't have to say anything for a while and just try to, try to make a little bit of progress? Or uh, uh, here it's very important that you, that you speak to your people about what's happening. I mean, it's a point. I don't like the word messaging because it, it implies a certain amount of public diplomacy, which implies a certain amount of uh, superficiality and effort to sell something that people really don't believe in. But I take this point. The absence of constituencies to support historic choices, even by powerful leaders, is a serious flaw in any negotiating strategy. Uh, Sadat used to say that his people, he didn't lead his people, his people were actually in front of him and he was responding to their needs. And most great leaders actually lead, but they also follow. That, in in, in essence, does have a lot to do with conditioning a public for the kinds of choices and expectations that will result. I remember people telling me uh, uh, after Camp David, I can't believe you didn't reach an agreement there. I was absolutely convinced that no American president would summon uh, an Israeli and Palestinian leader without the sufficient horsepower to deliver. And the reality is we, we couldn't deliver because not only weren't Arafat and Barack ready to do this, despite Ehud Barak's bold decisions at Camp David, but the Israelis and Palestinians weren't ready either. The notion that they, they don't know one another well enough is, is interesting. But I, I wonder also at times whether the problem is that they, that they know each other only too well. And if that is the case, then what is on the table is going to have to really reflect a balance of interest between the needs and requirements of both Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, And finally, Aaron Miller. After President uh, Clinton's uh, failure at at mediating a a Mideast agreement, uh, his successor, President Bush, concluded it's not worth uh, investing all one's political capital in this sort of thing, which, which results in nothing. The White Paper did bring about an agreement by both Arabs and Jews that they sought an end to the mandate. Hence, the mandatory authority ruled in Palestine without the consent of either section of the population. The main response of the Yishuv, which we've translated many times to mean the Jewish settlement, could not yet call it a state, the leadership of the Yishuv, their response to the White Paper was to bring in as many illegal immigrants as possible and try and grant a haven for those fleeing Nazi ferocity for their very lives. But Jewish opposition to the White Paper was shifted because of the reality of World War II. As long as the Nazi victory seemed a real possibility, fighting the war remained the greatest urgency for the Yishuv, and more important than fighting the White Paper. 
tens of thousands of Palestine Jews enlisted in the British army, and Ben-Gurion commented, as we've already quoted, we shall fight the war as if there were no white paper, and fight the white paper as if there were no war. British Prime Minister Naval Chamberlain thought that if we have to offend someone, the Jews are our safest bet, as they are relatively small next to the Arabs. It is in our interest not to offend the Arabs who control the Middle East, governed the oil pipeline, and there was a significant Muslim population in India, which was the jewel of the crown of the British Empire. Chamberlain instituted the White Paper, which meant no more than 75,000 Jews could come to Palestine in the next five years, when 62,000 had come just in one year previously, and at the very time that Jews needed a place to escape more than ever before in their history. And further Jewish immigration would be dependent upon Arab agreement, which means to say that there would be no more Jewish immigration. The White Paper also stated that 10 years later, in 1949, a state would be established based on who was the majority, which clearly meant that the Arabs, who were already over a million compared to some 470,000 Jews, would be the majority. If the number of Jews coming to Israel would be constricted, then the Arabs would be obviously the majority, and there would never be a Jewish state. The dream of a national homeland was over as of May 1939, thanks to the British White Paper. And yet and yet, there were some things that redounded in the state's favor. The population had increased from 60,000 to 470,000, which was eight times the size, meaning there was the ability to achieve a critical mass, at least in one part of Palestine, to make a Jewish state. The overwhelming number of those who moved to Palestine did not come as a first choice. But Jews had come there because they had no other choice. But they quickly became connected with Zionism. There was a pronounced Jewish culture, even if not religious, that was understood to mean that the people were coming back to their land from the past. The economy was decent. It wasn't booming, but it was decent. The greatest export was Jaffa oranges. The educational system was the best in the region. It was a coherent population. There was many redeeming qualities that made them candidates for statehood. The British had proven themselves incapable of curbing the ever-growing cycle of violence in Palestine. Not a single solution offered satisfied all of the parties. The only course open to Britain was to submit the problem to the judgment of the United Nations, since they had no power under the terms of the mandate to word the country to either Jews or Arabs or to partition it between them. Between them. The British government and the British public were just fed up with Palestine and ready to accept almost any solution to relieve them of this burden. In the late spring of 1947, the United Nations decided to set up an investigating 11-member body to recommend what should be done. This was called the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine, and far better known as UNSCOP, and their report would be considered by the world body in the autumn. In a maneuver that surprised all, the Soviet Union supported partition in Palestine felt that the British were no longer qualified to get any job done. UNSCOP had voted on partition, and surprisingly the Soviet Union had supported, as did the United States. But even with these two major powers, that still wasn't enough, and a two-third majority was necessary. The Arab and the Muslim states were dead set against partition, and the largest bloc in the United Nations were the Latin states, who were split, 
as the Catholic Church, which was so dominant in Latin America, was against partition. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.